We'll hear argument now on number 996615, Michael Wayne Williams versus John Taylor. Uh, Mr. Bloom. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. My client, Michael Wayne Williams, was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death in the Commonwealth of Virginia. In Mr. Williams' case, this Court is confronted with the meaning of the phrase, the applicant failed to develop, in Section 2254E2 of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, or EDPA. This morning, I intend to first discuss why the strict liability interpretation of E2 offered by the Attorney General of Virginia is wrong. Second, offer a more plausible interpretation of E2, which is consistent with the statutory language, the decision of this Court from which the language was borrowed, other provisions in EDPA, and the incentives instruct the incentive structures underlying EDPA, and third, demonstrate why my client is entitled to an evidentiary hearing under the appropriate standard. In any case of statutory construction, this Court has repeatedly said that this inquiry should begin with an examination of the language itself. And the relevant part of 2254E2 for our case reads, if the applicant has failed to develop the factual basis of a claim in state court proceedings, The court shall not hold an evidentiary hearing on the claim unless the applicant shows that the claim relies on either a, and now I'm paraphrasing, a new rule of constitutional law, a factual predicate that could not have been previously discovered through the exercise of due diligence, accompanied by a showing of innocence or clear convincing demonstration that no rational fact finder would have found the applicant guilty of the underlying offense. As I understand, Mr. Bloom, you you agree that uh, your client could not meet the very last of those specifications in the event that the court uh, found that that was necessary for you to prevail. That's correct, Your Honor. It seems that if Congress were drafting a strict liability statute, it would not likely have chosen the language of E2 if the applicant has failed to develop the facts. A strict liability statute or statute which did not care whose fault it was would say something like, if the facts were not developed in the state court proceedings. Who who else would develop the the facts other than the applicant in in a state collateral proceeding? Well, I mean, facts conceivably could be developed by either side, depending on the nature of the claim, yeah, whether but there's an evidentiary. You know, typically, if, if you're the petitioner in a state, state collateral review, you're, you're seeking to develop the facts, are, are you not? Yes. I mean, often that is the case, depending on the nature of the claims. The applicant will. But the phrase, if the applicant has failed to develop the facts, seems to indicate, clearly to me to indicate, that the applicant must somehow be at fault, a strict liability. Well, I don't know that the word fail, you, I can see that that's certainly a, ten, a plausible argument, but, you know, you, you say that someone in a golf tournament failed to make the cut. That doesn't mean that they didn't play as well as they should have. Maybe they did the best they could and they still failed to make the cut. It's just a factual statement. Well, I mean, it, in some situations it is. In many usages, and I think the most common usage, fail denotes some type of fault, some expectation left undone. And it seems if you tether failed with the applicant, if the applicant failed to develop, that certainly seems to encompass, I think, some type of fault. A strict liability statute is often worded much differently. I mean, a strict liability statute, you would think, most plausibly say, if the facts were not developed. Uh, which is, was a usage which was in play in habeas before this, under the old Townsend Five. If you're correct in your interpretation, 
What function other than surplusage does 2A2 have, which says that a factual predicate could not have been previously discovered through the exercise of due diligence? Uh, Justice Kennedy, I, that really — write that out of the statute as surplusage? Or? No, I don't think so at all. Um, I think if you look at the statutory language itself, what the, — if the applicant has failed to develop, that looks at — the conduct of counsel. What did counsel do? The exception, the factual predicate that could not have be previously been discovered through the exercise of due diligence, looks at the character of the evidence. In other words, I think the rule and the exception envisions a situation in which the applicant did fail, did leave something left undone, didn't reasonably develop the facts, but nevertheless is able to demonstrate that even if he or she had acted with due diligence, they would not have discovered the evidence. Why do you put the choice is between a strict liability matter and the word fail connoting fault? Aren't there a lot of intermediate positions? I mean, for example, this provision might not apply at all where there is no state proceeding. Suppose the state has a rule we don't have a state proceeding. All right, this, is, this isn't a matter of them failing anything. On the other hand, there are a lot of uh, state proceedings where, where state situations where the state gives you the possibility of an evidentiary hearing. And there, if the thing isn't in the record, and, and uh, he, he may have uh, failed to produce it. And, and then the next part, due diligence says, but wait a minute, if it wasn't his fault, the defendant, of course he's excused. I mean, that's the due diligence. So, so the failure part takes out some situations, like the situation where the state doesn't even have a proceeding. And it talks about the thing, you know, the possibility is there for him to develop it. And then the next part, the due diligence part, says, by the way, he has to have uh, been at fault here. Otherwise, uh, he's excused. I mean, that, that's how I read the natural flow of this. Now, is that wrong? Uh, well, I, I think it is because for several reasons. One, that would, for all practical purposes, eliminate hearings in most cases, even when the applicant did absolutely nothing wrong, because the due diligence under this language has to be accompanied by a clear and convincing demonstration of innocence. Well, that itself, I've thought and read in other briefs in earlier cases, presents quite a difficult question of interpretation. And that's why I was rather sorry to hear you concede that point, since I think lots of interpretation can go into that particular provision as to just what it means. And that is an issue that I don't think this Court has considered. But I think logically the fail to develop would envision, both in its language and in its usage, I mean, Keeney versus Tamayo Reyes is where this came from, I think, most logically. It's hard to say this did not come out of Keeney, where Keeney used this exact formulation. Did the person fail to develop? And Keeney was clearly talking about situations in which the applicant failed, was negligent, in which the applicant did not take advantage of opportunities to develop the facts in the state court proceedings. And this is the language that Congress chose. Well, some Mr. Bloom, I wondered if the language directs us to some kind of an exhaustion requirement, uh, trying to make sure that state uh, people convicted in state proceedings uh, try to raise their claims first in state court and get the facts developed. 
uh, it could possibly, I think, have that meaning. Has your client attempted to raise this juror problem in the Virginia courts and develop it there? No. The claim would be barred under Virginia law at the time it was discovered. I think we Do we know that? Is there no post-conviction proceeding in Virginia for newly discovered evidence? Virginia has a strictly applied harsh 21-day rule that any newly discovered evidence not presented within 21 days of conviction is not cognizable. Even if it's discovered uh, after that time? That's correct. That's my understanding of the law. It's one of the harshest newly discovered evidence rules. Uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. So there is no, but that does raise the question. I mean, I, I think certainly the AEDPA wants people to, uh, as did this court's decisions prior to that, to exhaust their claims in state court. To yes, it's very them. helpful to have the facts developed in the state courts, and I wondered whether that wasn't what Congress was trying to impose here, some kind of exhaustion requirement. I don't know how that should play out in a circumstance, as you allege, that a state uh, won't permit any development, uh, so it would be futile. Well, not only will they not permit, but you, if you look at the character and the nature of the claims in this case, they are withholding claims, evidence where the petitioner alleges the facts were within the possession and control of the state and were not disclosed despite a pretrial motion uh, which requested this type of information. They were required to respond. Uh, they did not produce the report. They did not, and there was uh, discussions about the deal. Are you talking about the juror now and the relationship with the deputy sheriff? Well, there are actually three claims, uh, Justice O'Connor. One has to do with the psychiatric report of the testifying witness, Mr. Cruz, which was inconsistent, completely inconsistent with the trial testimony. The second claim has to do but with — presumably that report was in the file someplace. It was in a file someplace. I mean, that is a question of dispute, which would probably have to be resolved at a hearing. When was it put in the file? Was it I, taken I out frankly of the file? was more concerned with evidence that was newly discovered and uh, no basis for discovery before. Well, I mean, okay, no basis for discovery before. On the juror question, what happened there, I mean, that was a question to which the juror was asked a question. Are you related to anyone? Uh, the chief investigating officer in the case was her ex-husband. Uh, she was also asked if she had ever been represented by any of the attorneys in the case, including the prosecutor's case, Mr. Woodson, and she answered no. Well, on, on, on the question addressed with respect to her ex-husband, you know, if, if she had been asked, do you know any of these people, obviously had she said no with respect to him, it, the, it, it would have been a misstatement. But it seems to me that the, the question asked was a fairly limited one. Maybe you wish later you'd say, did she know? But uh, she was no longer related to the person. She was, she was not presently related to him. I, I just don't see you have much there. Well, I mean, first of all, to answer the to go back, there were requests for more specific questions which were denied. This was the only question the trial court would allow um, in, in this particular case. But I just think it's a very hyper-technical view of the term related, um, as it is represented. I mean, I try cases, and I was trying to think about if I were sitting in a case, a trial, my defense investigator had used to have been married to, uh, a, to a juror, 
And I didn't say anything when the judge said it's somebody related. And I had represented them in a divorce, and I didn't say anything. I venture to say if that came out, I would probably go to jail at the end of that trial well, or I, certainly be fine. I, I, you know, you can say the witness should have been more forthcoming. But you're, you're alleging a constitutional violation here. And it seems to me that it's just very blurry. Well, part of that, of course, Your Honor, is because we've never had a hearing. The facts have been alleged. The facts are true that she was asked the question. She didn't answer it. The prosecutor was in the courtroom, uh, presumably would have known the answers but to this were false and said nothing. Even on your allegations, though, it's, it's a very weak claim, it seems to me, even assuming you can prove it. Well, assuming that we can not only prove that, but as I understand this Court's decisions dealing with juror bias, actual juror bias and implied bias, the remedy has always been a hearing, and a hearing at which a judge makes a determination of whether this juror is biased or not, looking at the witness's credibility. What are you going to have the hearing what about? They say? It would be on these answers on what whether — No, the specific question was, are you related to any of the witnesses? The true answer is no. It is also true that she was married to one of the secondary witnesses 14 years earlier. All right? Those are the facts, as I understand them. What fact further do you want to develop? There, uh, presumably, I would think on cross-examination, both of the, the prosecutor and the What juror, are you going to cross-examine them you about? You would ask questions about, you know, what was your relationship? What did you know? We know what the relationship was. She was married 14 years before to one of the And, and the question women. wasn't the, what was your relationship with, is are you related to? And well, the question is one ultimately of bias. No, it isn't a bias. It's of uh, whether she misrepresented in, in her response to the question. And you, you have to support the position that, that if you married someone and divorced them, you're still related to them. I mean, what if she had gone out with the man 14 years ago and hadn't married him? Would, would, would you still say, well, you know, she's related to him? I guess in some sense she is related to him. She went, she went out with him 14 years ago. But how, how can you possibly say? Well, wouldn't she also ask whether she'd been represented by anybody? Yes. There were two questions. Have and you ever been represented, represented by anyone? In the divorce. And she had been represented in the divorce by the prosecutor. Uh, and the question was a relationship. The two together certainly to raise an inference of uh, this juror's potentially biased. Mr. Bloom, can we just back up a bit before we get to uh, the specifics of the the prosecutor and and the witness? Are you suggesting that when you made a request in the state trial court that you would have a right to quiz every juror? I mean, you had you had no clue about any of this until an investigator happened to go to the various jurors, and one of them said, yeah, that Ms. Stinnett was once married to the sheriff. But you seem to be attributing some fault to the state court for the failure of your client to get at this information earlier. But are you taking the position that a defendant in a criminal case has a right at state expense to quiz all the jurors to see if there's something that was wrong in the answers? I think it would depend on the particular case. In this case, 
that what makes this an unusual situation, sort of not your typical juror misconduct claim, is that the questions were asked in the presence of the prosecutor, and he sat silent when he knew that the answers weren't true. Yes, but well, you never and would that have, makes uh, us different. You're, you're simply wrong in saying that the answer wasn't true about related to. She was not related to. It's you who have to kind of fuzz over the thing to even get a plausible case. Well, it certainly is true that she had been represented by the prosecutor. There's no dispute about that. He was the lawyer in their divorce. There, uh, I mean, that is how, true. How, how, how long ago had that been at, at the time of the trial? It had been about 10 years, I think, before the trial. That She was married and, to this and man. It was an uncontested divorce? Yes, but I don't see how under anyone could, tr- could say they – he had not represented her. Well, he had yeah. been the lawyer in the divorce. And her, what wasn't her answer? She simply didn't recall it? No, his answer was he didn't recall it. She said, well, I didn't really consider that to being represented. But those are the types of questions I think you would ask and more on a hearing on juror bias. It's the, it's the allegations themselves, but what they might give rise to. And the question at the end of the day, is the untruthful answer or the inaccurate answer or the misleading answer some evidence of bias? Uh, in the case. Can I come back to the text of the statute we're talking yes. about? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what your answer is to the hypothetical that uh, Justice Breyer posed. That is to say, suppose there simply has not been a state, evi- uh, a, a state proceeding at all. Does that mean that this whole subsection does not apply? I think it depends on what state court proceeding means. If you interpret state court proceeding to mean an evidentiary hearing, uh, I mean, that is a question. If you interpret no. state court proceedings, if a state does not have, for example, post-conviction, if they do away That's with right. post-conviction, That's right. then I would think this wouldn't apply. Then this wouldn't apply. Uh, unless you just say, if it's a, it, you could, now it depends. If you take the absolute strictness of the strict liability interpretations, which may be something the Attorney General is advancing, then it would still be your fault. Even though there weren't state court proceedings, the facts aren't developed and you're in federal court. Uh, I but, thought an, another possibility would be if the, uh, they had a full hearing and uh, the, there is a finding, but the finding is clearly not supported by the evidence. Now, that's a classic situation under Townsend uh, where the uh, uh, federal court will grant a hearing. And I thought possibly in such a circumstance, this whole section doesn't apply because it is a reason for giving a hearing, but it has nothing to do with the failure of someone, uh, the plaintiff. Uh, so, so I thought there were a number of Townsend-type situations where this whole section didn't apply but not yours. Well, E-1 may, might conceivably cover that situation. I just it, yeah. it just seems if you read the language, fail to develop, it doesn't make sense, I don't think, in the context as a whole, to say that this applies even where the petitioner did absolutely nothing wrong, even where the petitioner tried to develop the facts, took advantage of every opportunity. And it would also lead to absurd results. It would mean, if that's true, that it's easier to have the merits of a claim heard in a second petition under what uh, the success provision means here, then it is to get an evidentiary hearing in federal court in a first petition. If that applies. So that makes absolutely no sense. Why? Why? Because under the successor provision, you only have to show 
either a new rule of law to have your claim heard, or you have to show due diligence and innocence. In the case, that's what it says. So it means it would be easier to have a second petition merits heard than an evidentiary hearing in a first petition. What sense does that make? It also means that if uh, what happens in a case where the claims are procedurally defaulted uh, or held to be procedurally defaulted by the state court, the person comes into federal court, is able to establish cause and prejudice for the default. If this is a strict liability statute, then a federal court can't hold a hearing. The person has, uh, they failed to develop the facts in state court. They're able to show that's what it would mean. If it, it would mean they could show, they could overcome the statute of limitations on the state interference, the state impediment, uh, statute of limitations as it tolls from there. They would be able to overcome procedural default. Either they can show it's not an adequate and independent state ground, or they can establish cause and prejudice. But yet they cannot have a federal hearing because they fail to develop the facts. What, what is wrong with that? I mean, the, the, the rule is the only time we're going to give federal uh, evidentiary hearings is if uh, there's either a new rule of constitutional law asserted or a factual predicate that could not have been previously discovered exists, and uh, there, there's uh, evidence that uh, this no, no reasonable fact finder could have fa- found this defendant guilty. Well, it would mean, Justice Scalia, that in many cases claims would be properly before the court on the merits, and the right. court could not obtain the facts necessary right. and relevant to decide it. But this court has right. always said that if you look at a state's comedy and federalism interest, they are much more potentially damaged or in play by a court entertaining the merits of the claim. Once the court has decided to reach the merits, their interest in comedy and federalism are significantly less advanced by a federal court hearing the facts necessary to accurately decide the issue. And it would mean, if this is true, that in many cases, courts before the court, issues before a federal court, properly on the merits, court hands would be tied. And that just, uh, it, it seems to make no, it just wouldn't make any I, sense. I agree with you that, maybe I'm being repetitive here, but I, you've now, I, I agree with you that these words, if the, if the appellant has failed to develop a factual record, don't simply mean there are no facts somewhere in the state. There are a lot of situations, I think at least several I can think of, where the absence of a factual record in the state doesn't mean he failed to develop it. Now, you agree with that, I take it? Yes. All right. Now, if I've said that, but then rely upon the later thing, due diligence, to bring in the question of who's at fault for there not being a factual record, where fault is relevant, which is in a subset of the total absence cases. Now, does that produce bizarre results? I think it Can you would. You give me an example because that's what. Would well, be it would still be a very uh, well a situation. Uh, for example, in this case, in which uh, there is a report, a psychiatric report, it contradicts a witness. Uh, they filed a Brady motion. They've asked for it. Well, I don't see why you're not entitled to a hearing on that one. They didn't get it. They ask again in state court. But so, how does it produce an, an odd? Well, I don't there. see. But if you've really showed. You know, if there's a factual issue as to whether that report was in the record or not in the record, I guess you'd get a hearing on that. Well, I, I guess it's, it's not on the record. It's not the fault of the plaintiff. <laughs> and if it is in the record, it is the fault of the plaintiff, well, of, of the uh, defendant. Well, I think the problem with the hypothetical that I have, Justice Breyer, is I, I'm still unclear what you mean by fail to develop. I, I think 
that the natural reading of it, especially in light of Keeney, is it has to have some component of the inadequate record has to be fairly attributable to the petitioner. I, I just think this exception is thinking about something else, a case where you tried, but nevertheless were unable, you, or you failed. You didn't try, but you were able to establish you couldn't have discovered it. You didn't take advantage of the opportunities, but nevertheless you're able to show the witness was out of the country, beyond the subpoena power, whatever. Even if you had acted with due diligence, you couldn't have found the evidence. The factual Mr. Bloom, predicate. Just go back to the, you, you were now focusing on the psychiatric report. But if I remember correctly, Judge Marriage turned that one, he ruled against you on that one, didn't he? Yes, he did it on the basis, um, Justice Ginsburg, of an inaccurate view of the facts. Uh, what, and before he had the affidavit of state habeas counsel. The question really was what happened with, I know this is a confusing case because you have three claims where things came in and out at different times, but the short version on the psychiatric report is that uh, it was eventually discovered in federal habeas. It was brought as a Brady claim because the Commonwealth would have had position possession of this four months prior to trial. It was done four months prior to trial. Uh, Judge Marriage said, they said they found it in the state, uh, in Cruz's file. And Judge Marriage said, well, since you found it in the file, uh, you haven't shown why it wasn't found previously. They came back with an affidavit from state habeas counsel, which said, look, I went, I looked in the file, when I don't remember seeing this report when I looked in the file, however, given its contents, I am confident that I would have seen it had it been there. And I think that's clearly supported by everything else. This was the type of information he was looking for. He made a specific request to Mr. Curry for psychiatric reports, which they were told they had complied with Brady at trial and they didn't have any obligation to give them anything. Didn't he just say it was not there? It's a very guarded affidavit. Why He could have written an affidavit, said, I looked in the file, it was not there. He didn't say that, well, Of course, it? well, nobody can ever say that. Well, sure definitively, you can. Say, I looked in it and it was not there. Why can't you say that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, maybe it is sort of lawyer uh, talk and all that. I think what he, but his language is, I am confident that had it been there, I would have seen it. That's the language. If there are unresolved questions about that, then those are the types of issues you resolve at a hearing. I mean, the very nature of files is things come in, things go out. But did, 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 he, did he also say, I am confident that I would remember having seen it? Well, rather than me. I mean, in, in, in order to get to your ultimate conclusion, you, you have to. Yes, he said, I'm confident that I would remember it. It's on I would JA 625, 626. When he says, I have no recollection of seeing this report in Mr. Cruz's court file when I examine the file. Given the contents of the report, I am confident that I would remember it. That I would remember it. And that, I mean, that certainly seems supported by everything. This is precisely the type of information he was trying to get. Trial counsel was trying to get. He would made requests to get it. Uh, and these are the type, if there are unresolved questions about that, then those are the types of things that are resolved at a federal hearing, which is where we were. And that's where this case got off track. The district court had ordered a hearing. It was getting ready to happen. The Commonwealth took an emergency appeal to the Fourth Circuit. They, uh, uh, sent it, they said, no, the district court applied the wrong standard. All we want, and what I think my client is absolutely entitled to, is for this court to say that E2 is not a strict liability interpretation to recognize, I think, on the plain language that it is not a no-fault, that it has to be somehow attributed to the petitioner, then send us back to the district court and let us start over where we should have been before with an appropriate view of what this statute means. If there are no further questions, I'll save my time for rebuttal. 
Very well, Mr. Bloom. Uh, Mr. Curry, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to start out to try to clear up a matter of Virginia law on a couple points. Uh, Mr. Bloom has reiterated that Williams is conceding he cannot make out this innocence requirement under 2254E2B. In his reply brief, though, he does make some contentions about Virginia law and capital murder law that are flat wrong. Uh, and I suppose he does this in the context of trying to show materiality for his Brady claims. But it's important that the Court be clear about this. There is no doubt under Virginia law that someone who does what Williams got on the stand and admitted at trial that he did is guilty of capital murder under Virginia law. He admitted that he acted in concert with his co-defendant. He admitted that he intended to kill Mr. Keller. He admitted that he intended for his co-defendant to kill Mrs. Keller. He admitted that he was a full participant in the armed robbery of the Kellers. He admitted that he was an accomplice to the rape of Mrs. Keller. And most important, he admitted that he shot Mr. Keller in the head with the intent to kill. Now, in the reply brief, he comes back and tries to say, well, we don't really know where he shot him. He could have shot him in the leg. I would just refer the Court back to his opening could, brief. Could I ask about Virginia law, whether uh, if there is newly discovered evidence that could potentially be exculpatory, uh, that is discovered more than 21 days after the conviction. Does Virginia bar any proceeding in Virginia courts to determine the fact? Not if it is raised in uh, a state collateral proceeding as evidence in support of a claim. For instance, the juror claims. He certainly could have raised the juror claims. It's done all the time. He can raise Brady claims. What was the 21-day point? 21 days. The 21-day rule in Virginia has nothing to do with this case. But the 21-day rule in Virginia is that you have to file a motion for a new trial in the jurisdiction of the trial court based on newly discovered evidence within 21 days. Newly discovered evidence that comes is discovered after that initial 21-day period. Are state collateral proceedings available to establish the facts? Yes, Justice O'Connor. If it's in connection with a claim, you can't be just plain evidence of innocence on on a strict matter of guilt or innocence unrelated to a claim. But with respect to — What do you mean a claim? Uh, The uh, claim is I'm entitled to have this evidence brought out so that I can have a new trial. Right. You, You cannot do it in that abstract context. He can do it in the context of a claim that this juror was biased, that I have a Brady claim because evidence so, so if the he, trial procedure was unconstitutional, in other words, in the context of a yes, claim, which just, is what, what the claim is here. Yes, just like any other of his habeas claims. Okay, but he claims the, the uh, conviction uh, was obtained unconstitutionally because of juror bias. That's right. Now, he, can he establish that in Virginia? After he, the 21 days. Oh, certainly. He, 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 he doesn't even have to file his, in a capital case, he doesn't have to file his habeas petition until 60 days after this court denies cert. It's done all the time. Now, and on the point that you all filed with the Virginia Supreme Court, is it? That's the way he does it? Yes, Your Honor. And then they're the ones who order discovery if it's appropriate? That's right. 
Is there and a, they're the ones who decide whether it goes back for a hearing. Is there a 60-day rule on uh, cutoff of filing constitutional claims? Um, a 60-day you, you just you, — You mentioned that he does not have to file his claim for 60 days. Uh, is, is there a cutoff at, after 60 days? Yes. There's, it would be cut — his claims that he did not raise in state court would be cut off for two reasons in this case. Excuse me, 60 days after denial of cert. That's right. Yeah. 60 days after denial of cert, he has to file his state habeas petition. He can raise any constitutional claim he wants. Okay. But in this particular case, there is no rule of Virginia law that barred him from producing that psychiatric report within 60 days. Absolutely. He failed to do it. A absolutely. All right. Absolutely. He failed to do it, uh, so the statute applies. And now the question is, did he exercise due diligence? And you say, of course you failed to exercise due diligence. The report was right in the record. All you had to do was look at the file. And he says, my lawyer signed an affidavit which says he looked through the file, and if it had been there, he would have seen it. Okay, that sounds like a pure factual dispute. So why don't we have to send it back to the trial court to resolve what happened with the document that one side says was in the file and the other side says wasn't? Okay, so you, the judge believes one side or the other side. Why doesn't that require a hearing? Because that's not what Congress intended. Congress intended to cut through all that in most cases by requiring a strong showing of innocence. Which no, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Didn't we grant cert not on the meaning of this last phrase, which is a kind of harmless error phrase, but rather I didn't see anywhere where we're supposed to interpret this section about uh, the people, the, the, uh, the facts would be sufficient to establish by clear and convincing evidence, but for constitutional error, no reasonable fact fire would have found the applicant guilty. Now, if in fact we're supposed to interpret that, I'd like to get briefs on what that means. But, but, but I thought what we granted cert on was the meaning of the first part, failed to develop, etc. Well, I, I would certainly have to defer to the court as to the reasons it granted cert. But this case is certainly the, about the, the question presented. The question presented talks about the fail to develop and the state suppressed relevant facts. And does that require an evidentiary hearing? I see nothing in that question about the meaning of the third part. Justice Breyer, the one thing we know about this statute is that Congress linked the due diligence requirement and the innocence requirement. It's connected with the word and. That is Indisputable. We received so, in the case that, required, that Justice Souter wrote many briefs, and in those briefs I found considerable disagreement as to the meaning of this last phrase. That's oh, why I don't I, know that we should I, decide it here. I, 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 see the, I see the petitioner has taken that issue yeah. away from the court. He concedes he can't meet it, and the statute clearly requires both. Yeah, if, if you get to the due diligence part of the section, uh, then surely you can get to the same part that's joined by and. That's right. Mr. Curry, as, as, I, read, to get to as I read the question, it's whether 2254E2 uh, governs petitioners' claims. That's right. He says and it doesn't. It doesn't govern does. petitioners' claims, the claims made here, if indeed that last portion of E2 requires that he show uh, a probability of innocence. That's right. That's, his whole case is he's got to get out from under the statute entirely because of what he admitted in the first 15 seconds today. 
he cannot show the innocence requirement. And so his tactic throughout this has been to try to break that link that Congress made. And I don't see how it can be disputed that Congress made that link, due diligence and innocence. Now, well, well, he well, also has another way of, of, of getting out from under it, and that is to say that the word fail uh, is, is uh, importing a fault requirement as against, as he characterizes your position, uh, a, a kind of strict liability requirement. Right. What, what is, to what extent are you advancing a strict liability requirement? That, that's his term, and I don't know what he means by strict liability. It does mean this. You can't have a hearing unless you show both requirements. Well, let me ask you this, and I'm, I'm not, and, and I, I am in fact not suggesting that, that, that we've got this case before us, but I want to, I want to take a, an extreme case for the sake of argument. Let's assume that we've got a case in which, by any standards, including those of state law, there should have been discovery uh, allowed uh, at the state post-conviction proceeding, but the state opposed discovery and the trial court didn't order it, and as a result of that, there were, in fact, all sorts of uh, evidentiary materials that never got into the record. What did get into the record did not entitle the, the individual to any state post-conviction relief, so he now comes into federal court. Do you say that in that situation, his record fails within the meaning of the statute uh, uh, to develop the facts? Absolutely. Uh, that, then, that goes to attribution of fault. Then what you are saying, the it seems to me, is that in any state, the way you want us to read the statute means that in any state post-conviction case, if the prosecution, let's say with, with bad faith, succeeds in opposing discovery and therefore thwarts the development of the record, there never can be federal relief, even when it's appropriate on federal law, except for a prisoner who can prove uh, the, the innocence that is required under the last subsection, which as a practical matter means we would be construing EDPA to read federal habeas right out of the law in any bad faith case except for an innocent prisoner. Well, I certainly think that that's what Congress intended. You thought, you think Congress intended what I just laid out? Because of of what they said. In other words, no federal habeas, even when federal law would grant relief, and even when the state is at fault for, for thwarting discovery, unless the prisoner is innocent? All of the concerns that you're talking about, Justice Souter, are the concerns which this Court, when it was up to this Court in making the policy judgments, channeled into the cause requirement. Not any kind of threshold test as to whether the cause and prejudice test applied, but into the cause requirement. But the, the, you're, you're, think, you're, in effect, assuming that our cause requirement for the override of a default was a cause requirement which would ignore uh, the, the fact that a, a prisoner in this case, in my hypothetical, uh, was wrongfully denied an opportunity to, to make a factual record. Well, and you're saying that wouldn't have been cause, and you're saying it's not cause, it, 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 it's not fault here. No, I'm saying it, it, you might be able to satisfy the A2 requirement, could not have been discovered through the exercise of due diligence. That is no, Congress's but this is a case in which it could have been exer- satisfied with the exercise of due diligence, and due diligence, in fact, was expended. No. The reason it wasn't 
is not that it couldn't have been, but because it was wrongfully opposed by the State or at least wrongfully thwarted by, uh, by discovery rulings. Justice Souter, I, I hope I have the time to get to that because we certainly dispute that these claims could have been raised, could not have been raised with due diligence in State court. But let me tell you why I don't think that Congress intended the meaning of fault that Mr. Bloom is suggesting. There's certainly nothing about using the word applicant to start off the statute, which is unusual, because every statute, in every subsection of 2254B either says application or applicant. But the failure, there is no reason if you look at 2254 as a whole or other sections or any other habeas statute in EDPA, why you would give it a connotation of fault. For instance, 2254B. Well, but, you know, I, I recognize that fault can be read either way. If we were simply faced with, with the word fault, I would not find that word dispositive. Well, one of my concerns, though, is that if we read fault your way, we are in effect, we are in fact going to be providing that in a class of cases, there can be no federal habeas despite entitlement under federal constitutional law except uh, for innocent prisoners, and that is that would be a good reason for reading it the petitioner. Well, I, I do think that that was Congress's intent, that they did not intend to unleash the power of the federal judiciary in the form of a federal evidentiary hearing in a, in the case of a state prisoner absent a strong showing of innocence. Then why didn't they simply provide that there would be no federal habeas except for innocent prisoners? Because they also want the prisoner to be diligent. They required What difference does it make if only innocent prisoners get habeas? Who cares whether they're diligent on your theory? Well, if they're, if they're, if they're innocent, fine. If, if, if they're not uh, innocent, we don't care. Well, I take, I take it we're talking here not about whether they get ultimate habeas relief, but whether they get discovery or not. I mean, I I take it a, a prisoner who could not make this claim of innocence could nonetheless claim that uh, wrong, wrong constitutional rulings were made throughout his trial, have a perfect right to raise those. Sure. Absolutely. And, well, you know, it, it now, seems to me now, Mr. Curry, I thought that a majority of the Federal Circuits to have interpreted this very section, E2, have uh, articulated some kind of a fault requirement, if you will, on the part Well, there's no question they have, and I think they're dead wrong. But basically what they say well, is let, — let me ask you, if, if we think they're right, and if we were to opt for what the majority of the courts of appeals have held, then uh, uh, could this applicant have developed the factual basis in state proceedings in Virginia? Absolutely. And, I, and I'll go to the individual claims if the court likes at this point. On the, on the juror claims, let me let — me First of all, the, the, the deputy sheriff was not the chief investigating officer, and everybody should know that from reading the records. A minor witness he had nothing to do with guilt or innocence. The, the defense didn't even cross-examine him. But Williams had a state-appointed habeas attorney. He had the resource center working with him in the state habeas petition. And that is shown in in State Habeas Council's letter to me at page 344 of the appendix. The Resource Center has their own investigator. Now, they say they can't be faulted for not going out and interviewing the jurors. They they can't say they had no reason to 
uh, at least subjectively, because they say they made a motion. They did make a motion. Oh, but it isn't interviewing the jurors. It's interviewing the prosecutor, who was the trial, who was the counsel for this woman during her divorce. Isn't that right? Well, they could have interviewed the prosecutor, too, but the claim was — asked him when, when, when in an open court, there's a question raised as to whether anybody on the jury has been represented by one of the lawyers and there's no answer. They're supposed to go and ask the prosecutor, did you, did you or did you not represent any juror? Is that no. what you say the, they had a duty to do? No, no I'm not. The um, — uh, First of all, the prosecutor's affidavit is in the record. Well, what, had, was the, what was the failure in their part to find out about this representation? Because, they, say, Justice Stevens, they told the Virginia Supreme Court that they wanted an investigator to go interview the jurors. No, they, no, no. It's the lawyer, the prosecutor, who had represented her and, and was silent in response to that question in but, open but court. The, but doesn't that trouble you at just, all? Justice Stevens, the claim doesn't arise without talking to the jurors. But I thought here it was alleged this morning that the juror in question was asked if uh, anyone had represented her, and she said no. Right. And she was under oath at that time, right. I assume. She, she was asked, have you, ever, have you been represented by any parties? And she didn't respond to the question because she didn't think, look, this was an uncontested divorce, uh, and hopefully — some well, in any event, no. it, it looks like there might be some factual concern here. Was there a proceeding available in Virginia whereby this defendant, post-conviction, could have determined, had the facts determined? Absolutely. During the state collateral proceeding, they could have gone and interviewed the jurors just like they did for the federal hate. Okay, but proceeding. the question, I mean, what, I think what started all of this, uh, this line of questioning off was the, was the assumption that fault, uh, in, in the statute does, uh, refer to some failing rather than kind of a, a strict, uh, a, 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 a failure of diligence rather than a strict mere failure. And, and the, the question that I think Justice Stevens raised is, Given the fact uh, that the voir dire question was raised in open court, uh, the jury did not respond and the prosecutor did not respond, could defense counsel have been at fault for failing to investigate further into the counsel relationship? Is, is your answer yes or no? Defense counsel or state habeas counsel? Well, at this stage, we'll, we'll, we can say state habeas counsel. Absolutely. State habeas counsel entitled to rely upon that statement in the record. Absolutely not. They told the Virginia Supreme Court that they were — they alleged it in conclusory no, fashion. No, they, they may have asked for investigators no. because they wanted to go further. No, but Justice are you Suda. saying that they were not entitled to rely upon the silence of the record? No, they weren't. Purposes they, they alleged they alleged in the Virginia Supreme Court that there were irregularities with respect to the jury, and that's why they wanted to go interview them. But they didn't have a clue what they were until the federal habeas, when an investigator quizzed five jurors, and uh, a couple of them said, "Oh, yeah, she was married to." There, there's absolutely no reason why state habeas counsel could not have done that. Counsel, I, I looked at it. this case arose in what Cumberland County, Virginia, yes, and sir. I saw from the Alice, it had Cumberland County has a population of 7,500. It, it, I'm not sure of the exact number. Is, but is it that is the small. right order? Of, and uh, are jurors for a trial like this drawn from anywhere outside of Cumberland County? No, Your Honor. Oh. What about the other one? 
the other what? Well, I mean, I, I, I understand your point. The point is that uh, why didn't the State Council, the State Habeas right. Council, go and ask right. two jurors? If he'd asked right. two jurors, he would have found out the same thing. He, All right. He, but what about the other one, where you have the State Habeas Council saying the psychiatric report was not in the record, in effect? I know the exact words. Right. And, the me, other, and the other side says, yes, it is. Let, let me tell you two now. reasons why it doesn't matter. There's no reason to believe it wasn't there and that he just missed it. This is really a claim of ineffective habeas counsel. But let me tell you why. Because the trial record of uh, — or the state habeas exhibit that they submitted was a transcript of the co-defendant's sentencing proceeding in which a psychiatric report was specifically mentioned. Now, it's either one or the other. It was either in Cruz's file when he went and, and he missed it or didn't know the significance of it or just — doesn't recollect seeing it, or it wasn't there for whatever reason they want to dream up, and he's on inquiry notice. He goes to the court and he says, well, wait a minute now. I produced a transcript of Cruz's sentencing that shows that a psychiatric report was gathered as a bit of his pre-sentence report. I've looked at the file. It's not there. I want it. He can't have it both ways. He's not diligent either way. Uh, is he supposed to look at the uh, — I don't know, is, is he familiar with the different persons who's a co-defendant sentencing transcript? I mean — He made it an exhibit with his state habeas petition. He submitted it to the Virginia Supreme Court as his exhibit. It specifically says in there there was a psychiatric report. Now, that brings up another point as to why this really isn't even Brady material, because the record makes it clear that this psychiatric report was done as part of his pretrial incarceration. It was not part of the prosecution. It wasn't even gathered until a pre-sentence investigation was done on Cruz after Williams' trial. Well, it may, it, you know, it may or may not ultimately be helpful on Brady if he gets to it. But I just wanted to follow Justice Breyer's question with, with this. And, and I, I may be wrong on this. Just correct me if I am. I thought the reason we were arguing, or the, there was an argument over whether the report was in the file or not, was this that he had said, uh, I should have gotten the report. Uh, and the response was, not that you were on inquiry notice to do whatever was necessary to find it. I thought the response was, the report was in the file. And if it was in the file, quite obviously, you were at fault. Is that the reason we're arguing over whether it is or is not in the file? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question, but I, The I, question is, I thought the state's response was, when he asked about ultimately to the Brady request, yeah. it was in the file. No. So that the Brady issue turned down to a dispute as to whether it was or was not in the file. No. Is that, that wrong? No, that's not right. Uh, he, they sent me a, a letter making just an informal request for discovery. But it was, you know, it was, a, it was everything but the kitchen sink. It was your typical omnibus discovery request that you'd file in a trial court. Now, they have tried to characterize that somehow that I gave a response similar to the response that was given in the Strickler case, where this Court found as, as part of the reason a cause that, that, that he could have relied on that, that there was some sort of assurance that everything he had been given, he had been given a trial. I said absolutely nothing like that. I said, we're not going to agree to informal discovery. You have to file a motion with the Virginia Supreme Court, which they didn't do. So I misled them not at all. And they have never characterized what I said to them as any kind of misleading or assurance until after Strickler was decided. Before that, it was just, you know, Mr. Curry gave us the brush off. 
which is, which is basically, I guess you could characterize it. I, I didn't agree to anything, and I certainly made no representations that they had been given everything uh, they were entitled to a trial. Can you, uh, let me tell you exactly what's bothering me about the third part, the, the part about the uh, standard of clear and convincing evidence, etc. And that, I take it, is what's putting the pressure on the word fail, the, 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 on his side of it. Uh, suppose a case uh, has some evidence against the defendant, but much of the evidence consists of his own confession. And suppose it turns out later, through no fault of his own, much later, too late for a state hearing, we suddenly get a videotape and the confession was beaten out of it. All right? What's supposed to happen? Now, uh, that's what's bothering me. You see the problem? I mean, well, it I, been, I, is it because now, now you read the literal I, words of that third part, and those literal words seem to say that the defendant loses in that circumstance. And that's why I say I'm not sure they mean what they say. Would there be a no, constitutional I, I, problem? And that same problem, I guess, is here, but with, with the word failure. With all due respect, Justice Breyer, I don't think it's permissible to say that Congress didn't mean what it said. I mean, clear and convincing evidence is a perfectly uh, familiar standard. And, and this is unlike — Is there a constitutional problem in the case I put? I don't think so. I think that, I think that Congress could say there is no statutory habeas relief except in the absence of clear and uh, convincing evidence of innocence. Mr. Curry, we are now moving from the argument — there was a concession that if you get to E2, the petitioner loses, and they're talking about only whether fault — is required in that first part. Right. And you address the jury and you address the claimant where marriage held in your favor. That's right. But not one word has been said about the claim that where marriage ru- ruled against you. And so can you address that? That he ruled against me on what point? On the third objection that was made. About this alleged secret deal? On, on the deal between the prosecutor and Cruz. Well, This, to me, is the weakest of all claims. First of all, it's a 2254-D claim. This is a claim that was adjudicated on the merits in state court. So you never get to 2254-E2 unless it gets past 2254-D. And the state court clearly was reasonable in rejecting this claim because there is no evidence to support it. There was no evidence in state court. There's been no evidence in federal There would be evidence to support it if the psychiatric report had been available. Would there not? It's two different claims. Well, I know, but it, but if there if it were clear from that report that the Cruz could not have intelligently given the testimony he did based on his own recollection, it would raise a strong inference that he did so pursuant to an agreement with the prosecutor. I, I don't see that at all. I don't, don't see don't. I don't see the inference, the connection between those two things. I mean, look. Well, as I understand the psychiatric report, it, it was that he was not in condition to have remembered everything he testified to. Isn't that the right? He made he made a statement that because of the of the drugs and uh, marijuana and alcohol, which is flatly inconsistent with the clear recollection he displayed at the trial. Justice Stevens, I don't is think I don't think defense counsel would have even used that if they'd known about it. Well, don't you think there's some tension between the two? Between the I don't think it has any connection to whether or not he has a deal. He testified that he had a written deal. No, no, no. Doesn't it, it have revoked. some? Isn't there some inconsistency between the substance of that report and the nature of his testimony? Oh, certainly. And is, does that then not give rise to an inference that perhaps there was some understanding with the prosecutor? A- absolutely not. I don't see any connection at all. 
Uh, Williams' whole defense was based on his testimony. To the extent that they drank and, and smoked marijuana, his credibility would have been equally such. I, the defense wouldn't have even used this. And this report would have reinforced some basic points that the prosecutor was trying to make, and that is that Cruz was the remorseful one, that Williams, who got on the stand and, in the words of his own trial attorneys, was cold as a stone. And, of course, Williams also told an obvious lie when he said he didn't uh, rape Mrs. Keller because the, the, the forensic evidence proved that he did. Uh, Just one other question about your opening remarks. You, you, you recited all the things that he, he acknowledged. Am I correct in understanding that as a matter of Virginia law, if he fired just one shot, which he admitted, and that shot was not fatal, would he have been eligible for the death penalty? Was not fatal? Yes, if that one shot did not cause the death. Well, it, this shot did cause the death. Well, but no, no. I, no, I think if he fires, if he fires a shot, and hits the person, and the other person, and the co-defendant shoots too, they're both guilty of capital murder. No, I'm not sure you've answered me directly. If the evidence showed that he fired one shot that hit the person, but that shot did not cause the death, would he have been eligible for the death penalty? The jury would have to find that they were what we call joint participants, that they each played a part, an active part, in inflicting the fatal injuries. I don't think that that requires that they pinpoint to the bullet that he fired through Mr. Keller's face, that that, if that had been the only shot, it would have killed him. The medical examiner said all three headshots contributed to his death. If that's right, the whole case is a tempest in a teapot, because no matter what happens, you win, if that's right. Well, that's right. I agree. Yeah, yeah. But it's amazing, because the the understanding I had of the Virginia law aspect of the case through all the judges that reviewed it up to now was that if he's right that he just fired one shot and that shot was not fatal, he's not eligible for the death penalty. You can look at — that predicate is wrong, (laughs) — You can look at Judge Marriage's statement at page 645 that they all three definitely contributed to Mr. Keller's death, all three of the headshots. Thank you, Mr. Curry. Mr. Bloom, you have three minutes remaining. A lot of ground. Um, that's under Virginia law. On Michael Williams' own testimony, he is not guilty of capital murder. That that is clear. The medical examiner's testimony could not clearly resolve the issue of whether this was a fatal wound or not. You can look at it. They can describe it all they want, but just look at it. Was this lethal? I can't say. Wait a minute. I'm, I, I hold up a, a, a grocery store with, with a, a cohort, and we both we both shoot, and. Uh, uh, unless uh, the state can show that it was my shot that caused the death, I can't be convicted of capital murder? That's my understanding of the law. And in this case, the, the shot that most reasonably Mr. Williams fired was not a, the medical examiner. You should, always, say, you should always go in with a cohort. Could not say that was a lethal wound. <laughs> could, so he's not guilty of He's not guilty of capital murder on his testimony, on its own face. That's the point. Is the legal point of Virginia covered in the briefs? Yes. Um, According to what you just read, it says, according to the medical evidence presented, any of the three gunshot wounds, any, could have been potentially lethal, and all three definitely contributed to his death. There are a lot of citations. 
So what is the issue? Well, the answer is, con- is the medical examiner had a, sort of an unusual view of contributory, and she said any wound is contributory. She was asked specifically about the — there were two head wounds through the brain, one into the face. She said the two head brains were definitely potentially lethal in and of themselves. They went through the brain. On this one, she said — or you, she said, I can't tell. That was the answer. Was this a lethal wound? She said, I cannot tell. And that creates, at a minimum, a jury issue. Uh, on the question based upon the jury instructions that they were given uh, and certainly means and the important thing the, the, the answer to that is when there was a sufficiency of the evidence claim brought this capital murder conviction on direct appeal the Virginia Supreme Court didn't say Mr. Williams is guilty on his own testimony they went straight to Cruz's testimony and that's what they relied upon um, on the, the deal claim, I mean, one of the things to say that, well, on state court they decided and you lose, I mean, that's preposterous. Why was that true? Because they hid Cruz out. They wouldn't even tell state habeas counsel where he was. They wouldn't let him interview him. He filed a motion for discovery. He filed a motion for an expert. He filed a motion for a hearing. They said no. Uh, the question about the representation, what Mr. Curry said, they asked him about the psych reports and the other things, and he said, Michael Williams filed a lengthy request for exculpatory evidence prior to trial, and the Commonwealth responded to the request at that time. What else would that mean to you but you asked for this type of information at trial, we gave it to you, uh, you got everything you were supposed to get. It's on the, in the JA uh, at 353. But the deal and the psych report together, and that's the way I understand you look at Brady claims cumulatively, would have dramatically undermined Cruz's testimony. At the end of the day, this case was about who do you believe? Do you believe Cruz or do you believe Williams? The medical evidence didn't answer it. The ballistics evidence didn't answer it. And that was why this was Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Boom. The case is submitted.